Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this evening and the opportunity that we have to come together to examine this magnificent story that you have given to us through your word. Lord, I pray as we begin to look at this uh, through perhaps a, a different lens, a wider lens, that you would help us to understand where we are in the story, where you are in the story, and Lord, just how you've knit everything together perfectly as we see this tonight. Lord, we thank you and pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to begin in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and verse 1. Last week, Dr. Spivey opened this series up uh, by looking at God's secret strategy and how he has put everything together, had a plan from before the foundation of the world. And he mentioned that we're going to be looking primarily at the many minor narratives that we read in the context of a super narrative that God has put together that is the Bible. And as I was thinking about this, and also um, helping to homeschool our kids, and my job is reading, uh, which is great uh, when looking at this. So I was looking at the elements of a narrative, and I thought, man, this fits just right in with what we're talking about on Sunday night. So let's talk a little bit about the elements of a narrative. What do you find in a good narrative? Last week, Dr. Spivey put us on the right path by talking about the theme that we're going to see that runs throughout the whole of the story. But there's also some other elements that we, we kind of hinted at and we've kind of talked about. There's, there's the characters. You have a, a protagonist. You generally have an antagonist, and then you have some supporting characters. There's also um, there's a, the setting the, the place and time where everything in the story takes place. There is usually a conflict or a problem that must be solved in order to have a good story. Now, the better the conflict, the better the story. And then all of that comes together and is tied together in the plot, which takes you from one point in the story to another point in the story in a series of events. And ultimately, that you hope to conclude well with that major conflict being satisfyingly tied up, as well as any other minor conflicts also being wrapped up. But the first part of the story, the first part of the plot, we call the exposition. That's kind of setting the scene for the whole story. And in our study tonight, that's what I'm wanting us to do, is we're going to get some exposition God through Moses, sets the scene of the whole story. So let's look beginning in Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's all we're going to read for right now, but we are going to come back and read more. But first, the first thing I want us to see is that God spoke creation into existence. 
See, in these very first verse of the Bible that Moses has given to us, we're introduced to one of the characters. Anybody know the character? God, right? He's, who is God in the story? Main character. God is the protagonist of this story. In our English Bibles, God is the fourth word. If you actually look in the Hebrew, he's the third word. Um, God is the main character of this super narrative. And as we study more and more of the Bible in this Bible story, we're going to learn more and more about this character that is God. Now, when I say character, I want you to understand I'm not saying that he's some fictitious character. It's, it's a historical narrative that we're looking at. And it's true and it really took place. But what we learn first about God, not only is he the main character, but we learn that he's not a passive being. The first thing we learn about God is that he is active. And what is his first act? Creating. He's creative. So Moses, writing by the power and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins with this story of creation. Now, before this point, God has existed. He's been there in eternity outside of time. He's been outside of space. But every story needs a setting. And so God gives us a setting for this story. What's the setting? Earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, pause here for just a moment because this is something that we might miss. Every story also has a point of view. Somebody, whoever's narrating the story is telling it either from a first-person point of view or a third-person point of view. And so I think as we look at this, we, we get a good idea of the point of view. And sometimes we miss this because we're in the 21st century and we have uh, telescopes and we can send stuff out into space. And so when we think that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what we picture when we read earth is a globe that's spinning out in the middle of space. But what the word actually means is the ground, the earth beneath our feet. And when it talks about the heavens, it's this idea of if you look up, everything that you can see. So what's the point of view of the story? It's human. Human point of view. We're limited in our understanding because we can only see what we can see. We can see the earth... And we can see everything above it. And so here we, he, he speaks in this hyperbolic statement. We, we do this all the time, right? We use hyperbolic statements. I, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, right? Or she can hear a pin drop a mile away. Can she really hear a pin drop a mile away? No, it's hyperbole. Or I've told you a million times to pick up your dirty socks and put them in the laundry basket. Has it really been a million times? No, it's a hyperbolic statement. And that's what Moses is doing here. He's saying that everything that we can see in our point of view, all of creation was created by God. Even still, though, with the full compendium of Scripture that we have, we're limited. We can't pierce into heaven and see what God is doing. We can't see everything on the back. Now, he can, he can show us. He can reveal it to us, and we see that throughout. We see pictures of what's going on in heaven. We see some pictures and, and allusions to things that are happening behind the scenes, but what we can see is only what we can see or what God has revealed to us. And so in the verses that follow this, God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created everything. 
he, we kind of delineate this a bit. So God created three main realms. He created the sky, and he created the sea, and he created the ground, the earth. Then he filled each of those realms with creatures. And so he first create, creates the, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars to fill the realm of the sky. He also created birds that would occupy the sky. And I want us to notice something as we're looking at this, is that when God is creating these things, it tells us why he created those things. He created the, verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night and let them be, why? For signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So he, he gives those to help us understand the passage of time. He fills the sky with birds to occupy the sky. He fills the waters with fish and other creatures. And then the earth he fills with beasts, wild beasts, and creeping things, and cattle. So were cattle always domesticated? Were they created domesticated? Well, I don't know, but that's what it seems to indicate. But how does it say that God created all these things? Well, let's look at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And so we see this pattern over again. Then God said, and it was so. And so by the power of his word, whatever he said happened. Now, before we get to what happens next, I want us to point out a little bit of something. If we look at verse 2, it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, if you look at some other Old Testament texts, uh, the idea that the Holy Spirit is active in creation is found throughout this idea. So Psalm 104.30 Job 33 and verse 4, they all indicate that the Spirit is there and He is active in creation. And then if you look into the New Testament, John 1 verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 2, he says, He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing that came into being has come into being. So according to our scriptures, each person of the Trinity, the Godhead, was present and active in creation. So while God the Father was the primary agent to start this idea, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, they served as divine uh, co-agents in this creative task. So it was fully an act of the triune God to create the world. And I stopped to point this out, not only because it's important for us doctrinally to understand this, but as we look into the next set of verses, I think it's important for us to have, a, have this idea in our heads. Look with me down at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27, he says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
Male and female, he created them. So now we see the creation of humanity. So who is God speaking to in verse 26? Well, this has been debated for centuries now. Some say he's speaking to a divine council of angels, but I think that raises several issues about uh, whose likeness is humanity created in, who was active in creation, what were the roles of the angels as they were there. Um, this act of creation throughout Scripture is solely credited to God. He doesn't, it doesn't mention the angels creating anywhere else. And so I, I don't think that's what is going on here. But we do see a similar phrase in, at the end of chapter 3. When we get there, you'll see that. And then also in chapter 11, we'll see a similar phrase where God speaks in, the, uh, in kind of this concert way. Like, let us go and do something. And so, while I don't think Moses fully understood and Jewish scholars uh, throughout the centuries have debated back and forth on what exactly is going on here, I think that God is speaking here in conference with himself. He's speaking... Father, Son, and Spirit together, let us do this thing. Because we find this shift here, if you notice, throughout the rest of the passage, it's been in third person. Then God said this, and God did that. And, here, and so that's the way. And then we get to verse 26, and all of a sudden we're, we're in first person. We've got a dialogue. God said, let us do this. And so I think there's a shift there for a reason. And I think that reason is that something special is about to happen. And it does. Um, God creates humanity. And I think it's interesting if you look at other creation narratives from other religions and other backgrounds, aside from you know, the big three uh, monotheistic religions, most of them have humanity as kind of an afterthought or as uh, an annoyance, an aggravation. Let's create earth and put those annoying humans there so they will leave us alone. That's, that's the perspective of pretty much every other religion. And so, but here, Genesis presents a very different picture. God has created everything. It's created in order. It has a dignity. And then as really the final act God creates humanity, and something special happens there. Let us, um, Genesis 1 gives us a good overview, but in, in Genesis 2, we kind of zoom in on the picture here a little bit. So let's, let's jump over to Genesis 2 and look at verses 7 and 8. Genesis 2, 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, it says the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. And the word that is used there is yashar, and it has the idea not simply of creating something, but of shaping that creation. So, uh, most of you are probably familiar with Michelangelo's sculpture, uh, David. Uh, it's one of the most 
famous depictions of, of not only David, but of the male body. Uh, and what you might not know about it is that Michelangelo was not the first to ride on it, or to work on it. He was not the second to work on it. He was actually the third person to work on this statue. In fact, he inherited a block of marble that these two other sculptors had they had chipped it, they had chiseled it, and they had walked away and said, it's impossible to work with this marble material. And so it's, it's a flawed block. And then he comes and he labors to make this marble uh, that's so difficult to work with and has been tainted and, and made even more difficult than what it was originally by the previous people. By the way, it set for like 35 years between the first person and, and the last person. But now it has been, um, it's not only endured, not only become famous, but it's become so famous that it's been replicated at least 30 times around the globe. He formed this statue out of this marble. And it was very intentional and time-consuming. And so when God is forming this man, this is kind of what a want us to have in mind that it's not just God doing something, but he's intentionally forming, shaping the man. And as we look throughout the rest of Scripture, he talks about forming, knitting together in your mother's womb, and, and the potter shaping his clay. It's very artistic, it's very intentional, and it's very inventive. And it's one of God's activities. But even still, he shapes the man... And it's still just dirt that's formed. But something special happens here. It says, this is the only place that it says this, that God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so, by doing this, God placed within humanity a spiritual being. We are spiritual beings. Before that, we were lifeless, dead ground, dust of the earth. But because God breathed into us, he made us a spiritual being. We're in, made in his likeness. We're made in his image. And so here we have another character that's introduced into the story. And this is kind of a two-part character because you have Adam, the individual, but Adam's also a representative of humanity. And so humanity is introduced into the story. And so when Adam receives life, he awakes to find an earth that is filled, prepared to sustain his life. And God placed him not only on the earth, but in a special garden called Eden. And then we come across the first conflict. So it's kind of a minor conflict, but... It's also kind of a big deal because for the first time in creation, we have recorded that God saw something was not good. Verse 18, chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so then he brings all the animals and says he's, he's also formed them out of the dirt, but it doesn't say anything about him breathing life into them, but it, he forms them and brings them to Adam. 
And as Adam looks at these, he, he experiences the feeling that something's missing. He does not find a suitable helper. And so then in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we have this kind of parenthetical statement here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So while God had created all kinds of good gifts for Adam already, um, he wanted to bless the man even more. And he saw that all the other creatures had male and female. And so God created the woman like the man. He, he literally, the word is built her. He built her from the man's side. And Adam immediately recognized this one is like me. A helper had not been found, but now one has been made. And so God created humanity. Go back to uh, 1 and verse 27. God created them male and female. Now, I think it's interesting. It doesn't say God created them man and woman. It doesn't say that he created them husband and wife. He created them male and female. Yet, as we live in our culture today, that very idea is being challenged. And I'm not going to go into all of that because Dr. Spivey is going to preach about that next Sunday morning. But let me just say, God makes it pretty clear. There are two sexes. There's male and there's female. These are sexual distinctions that exist at birth within mankind and they can be noted from birth. In fact, when we were pregnant with, uh, with our first child, we waited to find out if it was going to be a boy or a girl. Chelsea's family was all girls. My family was all boys. So it was really a toss-up to see what we were getting. Uh, but having grown up in a family of all boys, I had absolutely no idea how to deal with girls. And so I was praying very, very diligently, God, please let me have a boy. And he answered that prayer, and so we got Joe in. But the doctor was able to come to us as soon as he was born and say, you have a boy. It was very evident to see. But even still, male and female are both created in God's image. So what does that mean? What does it mean that we're created in God's image? Well, once again, this has been debated for centuries. Um, many answers have been presented, but the most widely accepted understanding is that in God's image, we have received from him a responsibility to be stewards, to be co-regents with God over creation, to be over the earth. Um, humanity is, as it were, God's boots on the ground, uh, we, we serve in his interest, or at least we're supposed to serve in his interest. And so because we are acting under God's authority, it's, it's the same idea as if a king 
sent someone to, as an ambassador to another area, anything that happens to that ambassador is like it's being done to the king. And so any assault on a man or a woman is an affront to the creator and merits the ultimate penalty. And so therefore in Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. So Adam is the first man is a representative of all humanity. And it is to Adam and to his wife Eve that they received the mandate to feel and subdue and to rule over creation as it is given. So Adam and Eve, humanity, far from being this, let's, let's get these humans away from us and, and put them over here on this earth and, and let's get them where they're not going to bother us. Rather, everything has been created up to the point to where God makes humanity last as the crowning act of creation. He loves us. And then we get down to verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. With the end of Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, the, the representatives and parents of humanity, they live in a perfect home. And we might call it a utopia. That's, that's a common word. And in fact, um, last week, Dr. Spivey mentioned the ideas of utopia and dystopia. And as we were thinking about this, I, I thought about this idea, can utopia exist? Can utopia exist? And I began looking into this idea of these, these dystopian future novels that probably all of us have read a book or, or watched a movie that deals with a, an aspect of dystopian future culture. And I began to wonder, why might this be that we increasingly focus on dystopia instead of utopia? And I came across an interview from 2016 on this topic. Um, Ellen Whalen Smith wrote a book, and it's from an interesting perspective because her great, 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 I think it's just three, grandparents uh, were one of six couples that formed a utopian society back in the 1840s in New York called Oneida. Now, you might be familiar with Oneida if you have bought their silverware. But if you're not familiar with their community, the idea was they're going to establish a utopia on the idea of communalism. So there's no personal property. All the members live as one large family in a, get this, 93,000 square foot mansion. Yeah, it kind of makes our apartments at the seminary seem very small. Um, they practice what they called complex marriage, uh, meaning that all men were believed to be married to all women, and children were raised communally. They did not live with their biological parents, but the community as a whole was tasked with raising the children. And according to the interview, um, 
Oneida was just one experiment during that century because there were several that arose in the 19th century. And uh, Wayland Smith claims that utopian projects usually end disastrously. And that's what we find with Oneida. Now they're making silverware and practicing traditional marriage and marketing to traditional marriage couples. But the idea of utopia, if you even just look at the, the etymology, the, the construction of the word, what does it mean? It comes from the Greek, and it literally means not a place. So as people that live in the 21st century, we tend to be kind of cynical anyways, um, and so we're more comfortable with the idea of thinking of dystopia, ironically, because we can more accurately relate to that. We've, we've seen this great, um, everybody came to the United States, and then they became their own nation, and everything seemed to be going great, and then it started going downhill, and it seems to have continued to go downhill uh, since then. Whether that is completely true or not is up for debate. Um, you know, and maybe even sometimes we might feel like we're living in a dystopian world, or at least a proto-dystopian world, because the thought of a place where everything is perfect seems so unlikely. But I think there is a major difference between all these attempts like Oneida and what we see at the beginning of creation. First of all, beginning of creation, humanity was perfect. But more importantly, it's created by God. God created the utopia. Other attempts are based on a fallen, sinful humanity's efforts to try to get back to that in some kind of way. But creation was built by a perfect creator, God. There was no sin. There was no selfishness. There was no power struggle. Everything was perfect as God created it, as the creator himself was perfect and is perfect. So Genesis 1 closes verse 31 by saying, God saw all that he had made. Guess what that includes? Humanity. He saw all that he had made, and behold, it was not just good, very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here we have the beginnings of the narrative. The, the main characters are introduced. God and humanity are the, kind of the main characters. We have the setting that is creation. Everything takes, takes place in time and in a location that is the earth. Um, and we have the point of view of humanity. Everything that we're going to read is going to come from a human point of view. Yet there is still something special. There's a special setting that's introduced with the Garden of Eden in which Adam and Eve are placed. And, and there we find not only a perfect world, but a place where everything is beautiful, everything that they could possibly need. And then we find out in Genesis 3 that God would come to that garden and he would walk with them. They would have fellowship with him. Humanity and God living in harmony together in the garden. The perfect home that God had prepared for them. 
So, what do we learn from this? Well, first, we learn that we should worship God, our creator. God is our creator, and he is worthy of worship. If nothing else happened in this story, just the simple fact that God created us is more than enough for us to worship him. And as our creator, he deserves every every ounce of worship that we can give him. And in Dr. Spivey's series on worship that we've had on Sunday mornings, he's mentioned several times what that entails. We walk with God and we follow his commands. And while several passages mention worshiping God as our creator, uh, I think the most succinct that I found was 95 verse 6. Uh, Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's probably the the greatest application that I see from this passage. The next one may be um, perhaps stretching a little, but bear with me. Because I think there is another application that we see. If you look throughout the whole creation narrative... There's this idea of multiplying according to their kinds. And Jesus, I think, echoes that command that we are to multiply according to our kind. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then he gives the promise that he is with us even to the end of the age. So as we look at this, each one creates something, continues something. God created the individual um, species, and they each propagate their own species. So, you know, a, a horse makes a horse, a donkey makes a donkey. But you say, wait a minute, you put those together, you get a mule. But what happens? It's, a, it's sterile, cannot reproduce. So, like all of the other created beings, when we're recreated in Christ, which we're going to talk more about as we go throughout these, this series, we become a new creation, and he gives us the command to go forth and multiply by making disciples and gives some words of instruction there. So, there's, there's that application. But I think there's an element that we're missing from our narrative that's introduced in Genesis 1 and 2. What do you need for a good story? I said this at the very beginning. Conflict. You say, wait a minute, is there conflict in Genesis 1 and 2? It's a perfect world, perfect home. You ever have this idea of foreshadowing? There's something coming. It's not quite there yet, but it's set up and you may not catch it until you get further in the story. And I think that's what Moses does here, because if you look at chapter 2 and verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So God gives a perfect command, a perfect law, right? But it sets up this conflict that's going to come. See, Adam was a perfect creature. He was not a righteous creature. He was a perfect creature. He had never sinned. Eve had never sinned. Humanity was completely 
innocent. And so there's this great potential. They could choose righteousness following God's command, or they could choose unrighteousness. They could choose righteousness by following God's command, do not eat of this one tree. Now, we're, we're told that the garden contained all these different trees that they could eat. Uh, they could have explicit knowledge, or explicit permission, rather, here to eat of any tree in the garden except for this one. What does that mean? We talked about there was two trees that were created. Yeah, there was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So basically, you're choosing between two trees. Are you going to have the tree of life? Or if you take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. So will you choose to be righteous by doing what is right and following God? Or will you disobey God and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and thereby be cut off from that tree of life? Um, now, that doesn't mean that the fruit they eat is going to poison them. What it means is if they eat of the tree that God told them not to eat of, then his wrath will be against them. They will have broken his commandment and they have this threat against them, the threat of death. They would receive the death penalty um, because of their own choice, choosing wickedness. But here's the reality and um, sorry to ruin the story for you if you don't already know. But they choose the wrong tree. They choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But not only do they make that decision, each and every day we make the same decision. We are presented, are you going to follow God's commands or are you going to follow whatever you want to do? And every day we make the same choice that they did. We choose to break God's command. We choose to sin. Maybe it's by lying. Maybe it's by stealing. Maybe it's by just telling a little white lie. Whatever it is, we each do that. And we all need to be made into a new creation. But the good news is that in Christ, God makes all things new. And in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. The old things have passed away and new things have come. We are made new in Christ. See, in creation, God made us in his image. And in redemption, Christ took on humanity. He took on our likeness. In creation, God put Adam in paradise where he walked with Adam. And in redemption, Christ walked with us to lead us to God. And in, so Christianity is all about this return back to a perfect existence, a perfect home. And we see a, a glimpse of this in Revelation 21 and verse 27. The holy city of God is the new creation. And it says this, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's my question for you. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If it's not, Scripture tells us there's an there's a easy way to remember. 
Uh, you admit that you're a sinner, right? We said that everybody chooses not to follow God. You believe that God raised Christ from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead. He, he died as a sacrifice in our place. He endured the wrath that God was pouring out on humanity for our disobedience, the death penalty. He took that upon himself, and yet God raised him from the dead. And then you confess that Christ is Lord. You confess that Christ is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. ABCs. But there's one that I think we often forget. Because Jesus didn't say, go out and make converts, people who confess these things. He said, go out and make disciples. So we have to have this disciple element, that D element, following Christ and continuing to obey God's commands through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own power, but by His power, so that we can be with Him, be with God. And so if, if you've never made that decision, I challenge you today to do so. If you're here in person or if you're online, Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.